Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. If you're listening in more or less real time then, hey, it's Christmas and we have a special Christmas edition of the podcast. And if you're catching up then, hopefully you're looking back on Christmas 2022 as a very happy time. For Christmas, I have a special guest. I'm sure many of you already listen to the Euripides Eumenides podcast and if you don't, then I really think you should. In each episode, host Aaron Odom takes an unsuspecting and unprepared guest through an episode of theatre history. One of the many things I like about this show is the variety of subjects covered. In 50 episodes so far, Aaron's talked about points of theatrical interest as diverse as the effect of the interregnum on theatre, the Astor Place riots, the difficulties of putting Spider-Man on Broadway, the ghost of William Terrace, a subject I also covered, I seem to remember, uh, the Oscar Wilde trials, Richard III, why vampire plays always fail, and, well, a lot more. <laughs> Owens always has an eye to the humorous side of his subject of the day, and each of his guests brings their own theatrical story and perspective to the conversation. So today I thought I would not only brazenly steal his format, but turn the tables on Aaron and, without having told him what to expect, take him through some theatre history. In fact, through a whole genre. This will, of course, be Christmas appropriate and on a very British subject. I think if you're in the UK, you can probably already guess what that is. But if you're anywhere else, well, maybe not. So it's a very warm welcome to Aaron Odom from Trident Theatre in Sheridan, Wyoming. <laughs> Hello, Philip. Hello. So how did you like my description of your podcast? Is, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, that was... <clears throat> That was fantastic. I'm sitting back here and thinking, like, did I actually cover all those topics? And I'm going, yeah, man, I actually did. I was actually thinking the other day there was some story I heard on another podcast, and I can't remember. I went, oh, my gosh, that would be an amazing story on, on my show. And I can't remember if I ever did it. It was about some serial killer who was like boiling people in his apartment and flushing it down the garbage disposal or the toilet. And, and I'm like, I know I covered this. And then I'm like, no, I don't think I did. And so I don't know. It might be out there somewhere in the digital. <laughs> well, universe, I should but... also mention your latest episode <laughs> at the time of recording, which I thought was really interesting. The story of the marriage Ooh. of Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller. It's one that I think a lot of people have looked oh, on from man. the outside and thought, well, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? And so it's great to hear a bit of yeah, detail how about did that what, what might, they might have been thinking about why it was such a good idea for them to get together. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that was my 50th episode. Number 51 is going to cover the second half of that. And that that should be out before the new year. But oh, my word. Like I went back and listened to that again and I went, I didn't even get to the big heavy stuff yet. So <laughs> if you haven't heard it yet... Uh, there is a Bafo episode coming up. It's just going to be uh, right. Wow, like quite a story, quite a tragic character in real life, and it's it's a it, it was just absolutely fascinating to learn about that. And I, <laughs> I went back and told all my family and friends, if you're looking for any last minute Christmas gifts for me, anything Marilyn, <laughs> I'll take it because I'm was sure there's plenty out that, there. They'll have no trouble. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely, <laughs> and and looking, I'm looking certainly looking forward to that second part. Ooh, it'll be good. But in fact, you've had a lifetime of study of the theatre and of practical experience. You've gone from improv to Shakespeare and quite a lot in between. Mm -hmm. And since returning to Sheridan, um, you've been involved in supporting theatre in local schools and in the community. And you're the managing and artistic director of the Trident Theatre Company. Yeah, and we don't have time for the full bio here, but I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. 
Uh, but one thing I found particularly interesting is the idea that you do an annual production of the Rocky Horror Show in yeah. Sheridan. Yes, we do. But why did you decide on Rocky Horror and, and why for an annual production? Okay. So, um, you know, Trident is all kind of about the very, very visceral experience of being in theater. You know, um, I mean, I, I I have a lot of respect for uh, classical playwrights or, you know, tide turning plays, as I kind of hinted in my bio. Um, but Rocky Horror is the experience. Um, there was a, a group here at the local college, Sheridan College, about, uh, gosh, this was our 10th production. Uh, so it was 2013. And one student said, I would like to do the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but the shadow cast where the audience is shouting things out and throwing things and dancing mm -hmm. along with the actors and everything. I would like to do that. That's that's the experience that I would like to do. And I had never been to one before. So I went to see that. And for the next. Well, let's see, three years, uh, they did it on their own for three years after that. And then I got involved with just kind of guiding the students. It was, it was part of a student club. Um, so it was, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like, you know, uh, pointing their head in a direction going here, this is what you should probably do at this phase in the production. And this is oh, okay. You haven't thought about this element of the production yet. And maybe you should start thinking about it. Um, it became about, this was the second year in a uh, third, third year in a row. I've actually directed it um, for the stage, but it's become an annual production because it's one of those niche audiences that always shows up. <laughs> mm. Years and years ago, the uh, executive director of the Wild Theater, uh, uh, which is the Roadhouse that is here in Sheridan, we sat down one day. And she said, I'm just trying to figure out more and more ways to keep the doors swinging, right? And I said, well, what you got to think of is not stuff that is going to speak to everybody because there are so few things that speak to everybody. In this on-demand culture that we are in, and I've mentioned it on my show several times, I am of the firm belief that we are a culture of nerds. <laughs> and I mean that in the most respectful way possible in that because we have access to so many things so readily, whatever we're really into, we can be fully into it. You know, I Absolutely. mean, people can have very, very heated debates about, uh, <laughs> gosh, I was just having one with my 14 uh, year old son last night about the status of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, you know, um, hey, here we are. Today is the day. France versus Argentina. Who's going to win the yeah. World Cup? Everybody's talking about that. Or it could be, you know, um, uh, my uh, I'll bring him up again. My older boy used to really, really, really be into like World War Two um, machines like tanks and submarines. And, you know, and so he could he could debate on the effectiveness of which country had the better, better stuff. So uh, my point being, like, we all have different things that we're really, really into and surprisingly enough they bleed over there are so many different venn diagrams of of human interest that i said so why don't you start thinking that direction <laughs> and mm. um for several years now in january they've had a western film festival so like every sunday at two o'clock there's another classic western that's going to be on the big screen down there um i did one once about six years ago it was a classic horror film fest 
uh, we hosted that. And I think they're, they've taken that idea and they've gone in a lot of different directions. Right now they offer uh, the Met Live uh, streaming from, uh, from really? New York. Uh, they have a national theater thing. Uh, they've really broadened their, their scope on that. But Rocky Horror just was one of those ones that there was an audience. And we live in Sheridan, Wyoming, which, uh, you know, pretty classic – Western American town that likes to champion itself for, you know, traditional values and, and things like that. But there are people who don't always feel like they fit that mold and they needed a place that was for them and something that was available for them to feel safe and feel like themselves and, and, and be who they could be. Um, you know, the first year I direct, I was able to direct a full production. I got a a couple episodes in my roster about uh, the cast's experience in that, um, and just some beautiful, beautiful stories that came out of that. I mean, I have a had a young man with autism who kind of learned how to deal with that uh, with other people uh, in being able to express comfortably who he was um i had a a a young woman um uh and uh, who who knew she was queer just didn't know where to go from there and kind of helped herself explore that i had another young woman in the cast whose mother and her brother were murdered uh sometime within the the two years prior to that and it kind of helped her realize that this is another stage of grief that she could get through. So it was. It, it, it's it's very strange to me that something as campy and goofy and sexually charged as the Rocky Horror Picture Show can actually be that kind of revelatory and epiphanous uh, experience, and it has been for so many people so far. So we'll just keep doing it until they tell us they're tired of it. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds great. And I should point people, there's a couple of your podcast episodes where you talk to the casts in some some more detail uh, about that, which were, were also, I thought, really interesting insight into why people get so involved and invested in in this great thing that we like talking about. Oh, yeah. Being the nerds that we are. Of yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I don't mind that title. No. <laughs> and this year, it was just amazing. Uh, I, I had to actually kind of stoke the uh, a fairly timid audience even though they were shouting at the screen the whole time but i had to remind them you can stand up for the time warp and dance it with us that's okay and they finally did oh. <laughs> okay that must be fairly unusual in that situation it's it <laughs> very weird <laughs> Ah, uh, the great communicator that is theater mm-hmm. so well i checked and we are five thousand three hundred miles apart and oh. that's seven time zones. So I'm on my afternoon tea, and I guess you're on your morning coffee, probably. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> but we can still talk about this thing that we all love so much. Now, oh, yes. I, I've never been to Sheridan. I, I did mm-hmm. get close to Sheridan once. I was on a tour of the US uh, the oh. National Parks a few years ago, and we visited the site of the Little oh, yeah. Bighorn Battle, uh, which is about, I think, an hour and a half's drive away from where you are. Very wet day, I remember. Really, um, it's just—it's like it's—it's it's just about one hour straight north of me, and holy smokes, <laughs> what a story! I mean, that that was a a great piece of theatre as well. Actually, we had a, a Native American guide who, because uh, it was pouring with rain, had to give us the story of Little Bighorn from the front of the bus that we were <laughs> sitting on. 
but she really got stuck into playing out that confrontation as best she could as one person on the front mm. of the two of us. It was it was a great day. It was a great day. Uh, but have you ever been to the Have you ever been to the UK? I have not been to the UK. It is absolutely on my bucket list. And you know when when I do more and more episodes on the UK, uh, it, it's it's fun to. Like I, 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 I like to actually get a visual for a lot of these things. Like, for example, when I did the episode on William Terrace that you mentioned earlier, I dropped myself into Google Maps and I made myself walk through the entire West End and all the alleyways and everything just so I could see it. And so I've got a good picture of what it looks like, but no, I've never been. <laughs> right then. Well, you're going to have to imagine this because you have got to imagine mm. yourself then being in England for Christmas. Mm. All right. And at Christmas time, the theatre stages are overtaken by one particular form mm. of theatre. <laughs> that is the Christmas pantomime. Yes! Oh, my God. I thought we were going to talk about a panto. I love it. Okay. Oh, uh, yes. Here we go. So the pantomime tradition didn't start as a Christmas entertainment, but the modern pantomime is very much a Christmas event. Indeed, over here, if we say we're off to the panto, everybody knows we mean the Christmas pantomime. Mm -hmm. And they have a pretty good idea of what we're going to be experiencing. Oh, that's amazing. So in the UK, from early December to at least the end of the month, and usually well into January, almost every regional theatre and one or two West End theatres will put on a pantomime. Mm. For many people, it's the only theatrical experience from one end of the year that they have. And for many, I would even say most, it's probably the first experience of theatre that they ever had. It certainly was for me. Really? Really? I oh can my remember... Gosh sitting in <laughs> i can't tell you what year it was but it was early 1970s and i've just got this okay. memory of sitting in my the old castle theater in my old hometown that's one i talked about on the podcast uh, a while back and i can remember being asked to blow very hard along with the rest of the children in the audience so that the character on stage could be lifted <laughs> by this really large umbrella that he was holding and escaping through the air I can remember him gliding past me, oh, and then I got really dizzy because I'd been blowing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I just—I always remember this because it's like the first memory of theatre for me is of participation. Oh, which I think says quite a lot. See, okay, so I'm thinking of that right now. If that is the formative experience for people in uh, who can't always get to a commercial theatre like West End, they are going to their community theatre through to a regional theatre. If that is what their first experience is, they must be thinking that's what theater is all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm expecting they have a I'm expecting to, to see some uh, old man in drag, uh, you know, uh, battering somebody about <laughs> with uh, a rolling pin. And uh, we all have to take part in this. So that little story tells you it's it's for children and it's full of audience mm -hmm. participation, but it mm -hmm. also has adults in mind. A pantomime, it's mm -hmm, a family right. occasion. So the target audience is the children of all ages, the mums, the dads, the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents. Theatre right. is filled with people from five years old to maybe 90 years old, even more these days. Who knows? <laughs> so just as an example, and I, I think this is typical, my local theatre in Windsor here is running their panto from the 2nd of December until the 8th of January. Oh, okay. There are just five off days in that period. <laughs> Two Mondays in early December, mm -hmm. Christmas Day, New Year's Day, and the first Wednesday in January. 
To be honest, I have no idea why they have the first wow. Wednesday in January off. Uh, I guess one of the main cast is doing something else or something. Could it could it be something That's like? An odd day. It, it, could it be something that it, it, maybe it's like the twelve days of Christmas or something like that? It's extended past. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't work it out. It's not but... something we necessarily celebrate in in the states, but at the same nope. time, it's a. I, I don't think we do a, here either. It's a song we sing every year. So, <laughs> and within that period so that's 33 performing days there are 73 performances oh my god <laughs> most days most days there are two performances right and on the weekends and on holiday days around the christmas days there are three performances a day. Mm. one o'clock four o'clock seven thirty in the evening oh my word and i checked the running time's about two hours so these actors and that crew Ooh. they are working hard now I'm I'm thinking back in my theater history past, and I remember I think it was my uh, senior year in college. I was at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, and we were assigned in my directing class to go out and uh, find some plays and comment on the directing. And I was it was down to the wire, Philip. I had left it off for most of the term, and I just went, "Oh man, I've got to go find several plays." I found this little playhouse in Santa Monica that was doing Cinderella. And I went, oh, okay, okay, we're familiar with this. I had no idea that it was a panto. And, and I went out and I'm like, there were three guys dressed in drag. And they were all the, the evil stepsisters and stepmother. And they'd run around in the audience and, and like almost step on your toes going through the aisles. And I was just... I was. I'm so annoyed by the whole thing because I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> if only we'd had this, this conversation before you went there, it would have made so much sense. I would you. have had so much joy. <laughs> and and what I was going to mention next was, so what are what's the plot of this play that gets put on yes, every year? Go ahead. Well, there, there are several because we have traditional stories. So I'm going to shout some names out to you. I'm sure you know most of them. Okay. Aladdin. Oh, yep, yep. Dick I've Whittington. Mm -hmm. Puss in Boots. Oh, Puss in Boots. Maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. Sleeping Beauty. Cinderella. Jack and the Beanstalk. And Mother Goose. Mm, okay. Now those, I guess you probably recognize all of those as old fable, old fables, fairy tales kind of thing. Not Dick Whittington so much, but yes. Uh, let's put Disney out of our mind for, for a moment. You know, not um, we're not talking Disney. Exactly. No. Mother Goose, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I've never seen Mother Goose, and I didn't really remember the story of that one particularly. Uh, in fact, it's probably the oldest pantomime because it has its origins in a Greek myth of the goose laying the golden egg. And then the story was adapted in the 18th and 19th centuries about how Mother Goose is about to be thrown off her land because she can't pay her rent, and it becomes a, a moral fable about the the, the uh, poor person coming good. Um, the other ones, I, I think, you all know, maybe Puss in Boots. That's an Italian folk tale originally about a a, a man and his cat, and it, and it's kind of a moral tale. Yep, yep, yep. Familiar like many of these fairy tales, not that moral, um, because it's all about getting the better one over people. But the main character is led by his cat. So the cat is the bad person in this, not not the innocent man. <laughs> so though all of those are the core eight pantomimes that are the, considered the traditional ones. Right. 
and they're still very popular. They, they still get performed. There are some others that are regularly performed, but they don't quite fit into that category. So there's Robin Hood uh, and Babes in the Wood. And those are often mashed up into one pantomime, those two stories. Ah, okay. Yep, yep. And then you get Beauty and the Beast, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and Little Red Riding Hood. Mm-hmm. Still fairy tales, but they, they don't have the history of the pantomime. And then there's an outlier, which is Peter Pan. Oh. Now, that's a, it's a strange <laughs> one because it's probably the, the least traditional, but most people would probably name it as a pantomime that they knew first. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, it's a strange one. It, it first appeared, you probably know about Peter Pan, uh, Jay and Barry story <laughs> uh, called The Little White Bird. Uh, and then he mm-hmm. took that character that appeared in that story and wrote the play, Peter Pan, The Boy Who Never Grew Old. First performed mm-hmm. December 27th, 1904. Right. And that wasn't created as a pantomime, but it did become associated with Christmas performances because of that 26th of December start date. Something we'll come back to in a little while. Oh, ooh, ooh, can't wait. But most people would now say that's a traditional pantomime, even though technically it's not. Interesting. So, so maybe you'll cover this in a minute. So, were pantos like. Were, was there a start date for these? Like, uh, uh, did they have an origin uh, story somewhere in the annals of history that they all went, hey, let's let's just take uh, traditional fairy tales and tell them? Indeed they do. But I just want oh, to tell excellent. you a bit more about what a pantomime is, just in case. Yes, I, please. I, I realize here now that you've seen one. So um, Cinderella. <laughs> one. Is- I have seen one by an American troupe in Santa Monica, California. <laughs> So I don't know if I've really seen one. Let me tell you something then. So, Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll start with a, a big name, actually, because this year there's a West End panto starring no less than Sir Ian McKellen. Yes. And uh, an actor comic called John Bishop, who you may know. He's been in the last series of Doctor Who um, oh, okay. playing Dan Lewis against Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. So ah. if anyone's seen Doctor Who, the last series, last couple of series, he's he's been in that. He's a Liverpudlian comic who's an actor as well. So, so this, is the, a really, this is the big thing. He's the lowest lane in that series. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're starring in Mother Goose, which is then going mm-hmm. to tour for the first part of the year after its West End run. And I'm going to tell you what Sir Ian said about it. Um, yeah. Because I think this is a great description. He says, so it's about good and bad. And of course, good always triumphs in the pantomime. But it uses every device that theatre can offer. There is singing, there is dancing, there is rhyme and there is jokes. There is sentiment. There is audience participation. There is a man dressed as a woman. There is a woman dressed as a goose. And it's like (laughs) everything has gone haywire. And it's all for the audience to have a good time. That is the only reason for doing it. But it really intrigues me that this has come out of this country. So, so Ian really rates the pantomime. I oh, yeah. I, th- I think it was several years ago I saw uh, an interview on like a late night talk show with him or something. And and he was doing another one. I can't remember what it was. It might have been Aladdin. Um, but uh, they were like, hold on. <clears throat> you are Sir Ian McKellen. You know, we've seen... I think I've classically, I've told this several times. I may have told it on my show before, but when he did King Lear in 2008, it was huge production, toured all over. It was filmed. It was amazing. And uh, when he was done, he got interviewed and he said, and they said, uh, so you've been, you've been on the stage for almost 70 years now. Um, What 
are there any roles you'd like to give another shot that, you know, you'd, you'd like to have another crack? And he goes, yeah, King Lear. <laughs> said, what? He said, yeah, I just didn't really feel I got the crack of it. But and, and he played it again, like within 10 years. But um, so uh, on this other talk show, you know, he's he's got this very storied career of being this incredible actor. Um, I mean, I'm a huge comic book fan and Magneto is now my favorite mm-hmm. Marvel character because partly because he played him. Um, but they were going, but you, you're this I mean, incredible actor and you're giving so much time to a pantomime. And he's like, uh, absolutely. For many of the reasons you just described, yeah. you know, we can, we can, it's, it's much of the same reason that I do Rocky horror every year. You know, I mean, I, I, one of my flagship, uh, productions that I did for Trident was a masterclass by Terrence McNally, which is all about the uh, series of masterclasses that amazing opera diva Maria Callas gave at Juilliard in the seventies. And it's this very heavy piece about what do we sacrifice in art so we can have that art be great. You know, it is this huge heavy piece. And and if anybody knows the story of Maria Callas, you know, she had a very short career because she destroyed her voice with how hard she sang. Um, I mean, that's a very simple way of putting it. And there were a lot of other factors as well, but it was it was not an easy piece. And then to turn around and every year do Rocky Horror. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, we can we can do this, which does have some elements of theater. But by God, Rocky Horror also has all of these elements of theater and there's humor and there's tragedy and there's amazing songs and there's dancing and there's amazing costumes and there's sexual allure and the spectacle. And I could go on. Mm. <laughs> so I see it. I get it. Pantomime has definitely got some kudos these days which hasn't always been the case but uh now you know people want to appear in panto and i gather you know sir ian and john bishop are having a good time uh in london at the minute doing that well as as you're saying everybody goes everybody goes to see them so of course they want to go be in those because everybody's going to see them and of course Absolutely. you already mentioned the the central piece of this for many people is the pantomime dame yeah, the, every panto has one. Mm-hmm. So in Aladdin, it'll be Widow Twanky. In Jack and the Beanstalk, it'll be Jack's mother. Cinderella gets two, as you mentioned, the Ugly Sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the other. This this isn't about being transgender or even about being a drag queen. This is about a man dressing as a grotesque comic female character. Right, classic the dame's masculinity. It has to be obvious. Right, it's Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire, but on steroids and and way way less subtle than either of those. You know, do. there is a musical based on the board game Clue that goes around every now and then, and it's one that the audience gets to uh, guess. Uh, you know, the three main elements, the murder weapon, the location and the murderer. And uh, the I think I think it's actually written into that script, but I might be wrong. It, it could just be the production that I saw of it that they did this. But the character of Mrs. White was played as a panto dame. And and it was great. Just this gruff, short, chubby little man. You could almost see stubble on his chin with just this awful made costume and white wig and oh it i loved it i thought it was a brilliant twist but i don't know if that's actually uh written into the script or not some director might have just made that yeah made that choice 
so there, there's a um, obviously there's a, a long long tradition of men playing women on the stage mm-hmm. going right back to Shakespeare not not that this comes from that no. strand of theatre this is a the first recorded dame was a guy called Samuel Simmons who played Mother Goose in 1806 1806 and the okay. first widow Twanky yep. appeared in Aladdin in 1861 so that's the period where we're talking Whoa. about and one thing I found out was Widow Twanky that name's not from the original Arabian Nights story no. uh, the character was named at the time after a really low quality and therefore very popular and cheap kind of tea that came from China. <laughs> so they gave it this name so people would know, you know, the, the Chinese association. And the, and uh, I'm sure they played up the ethnicity of the character because they wouldn't have had any, any qualms about doing that at the time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> In quite the way we might now. Yeah. More of that later too. Ooh, I can't, I can't wait. Some actors make make playing the dame every year their thing a tradition that started in 1888 when music hall performer dan lino took on the role of the wicked aunt in the babes in the wood and then played the dame in the same theater for the next 15 christmas seasons (laughs) apparently he used to boast that he would play the dame for the rest of my natural life which was a fact that he more or less achieved actually uh he had some some sort of mental health problems later in his life and he stopped acting oh. uh, at the beginning of 1904 but then he was they called him back because he was such a great dame and they said you must come back and be the dame again this year <laughs> and he agreed and he was starting rehearsals uh, and then he died that oh, october before geez. he got the chance to play <laughs> Um, now, which is a bit sad. But, uh, now, I want to go back on something there that is kind of interesting to me. And maybe you can uh, uh, illuminate this a little bit. But you were saying that the first dame was in uh, what? The early 1800s, right? 1806. Yeah. 1806. Okay. And it didn't really become a standard thing for about 60 years? Well, st- the, there may have been others in and, between and, those dates that I didn't find a record of. But right, uh, the, right, these exactly. are in the main London theatres. Right. But it became so. standardised, uh, or at least widely recognised, by 1860. By tape, yes, definitely. That, yeah. I, see, I just love to see how those trends work, you know. Uh, I mean, I used to teach this um, uh, theatre history, and I, I, I love describing this as like a pendulum that is swinging from left to right, and you can see like how an idea will build in momentum and build and build and build, and it will get to where it's like we've used everything we could out of this, and then it will go the opposite direction because it, that's just yeah. how things go. Um, but I, I love to see the speed at which the pendulum swings as communication technology uh, becomes uh, a little bit more advanced. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that it took them 60 years to go, why don't we just do this all the time? <laughs> That's fascinating well, to me. And then another 20 years where it's like, this is my thing that I do every year. <laughs> yeah. And now we're talking about something that, that every, you know, we all here think has been around for, well, for, pre- for pretty much forever, it's un- until you start looking at those dates and you discover actually this is a very Victorian right, piece right. that we're looking Which at. also doesn't yeah, surprise basically. me. It kind of comes out of that romantic era, you know, when you're talking about good yeah. versus bad and good always wins and stuff like that. Yeah. 
well, we'll get there. But I okay. I'll make an argument that it goes a little further Ooh, than that. Good. All right. See, see what, see what you think. Okay. Uh, so it is full of it's full of traditions. Mm-hmm. It's full of mm-hmm. set pieces, and often this pantomime dame is the center of those. So just to give you a sense, a common sequence will be the dame washing her clothes and putting them out on the line to dry. So we get to see all her underwear, you know, but nothing yep. skimpy or sexy. This is this is all outrageous, bright colours, huge sizes. It's and, just... and usually there's a there's an it's a rotating washing line and there's another character that will be removing them from the other end of the line as she's putting them on and putting them back in her basket. <laughs> so the whole thing could go on forever uh, until somebody interrupts. Right, right. Or you've got the dame doing doing the baking and everyone ends up covered in flour or uh-huh. some some other substance. A, that sounds like it doesn't a, quite make it into the oven. That sounds like a mixture of two of my favorite things through theater history. One, uh, the comedic Lazzi from Commedia dell'arte in which, you know, it's just a scene in which nothing really happens. It's just great for a laugh. Uh, And one of my very favorite lines from The Importance of Being Earnest, the character Algernon talking about people flirting with their own husbands across the dinner table, just airing out their clean linen in public. (laughs) That's a great (laughs) quote. (laughs) But the the dame is balanced. There's another tradition, which is the principal boy, Mm -hmm. Peter Pan, Dick Whittington, Jack and the like, being played by an actress. But like the dame, this isn't about uh, gender values or anything like that. This is just a bit of fun. But there is a bit of history associated with that as well. Ah, yes, I was going to say, it's a breaches role, right? Yeah, exactly. In 1837, there was an actor-manager called Lucy Vestris who played the lead in Puss Puss in Boots uh, in breaches. Now, I know Mm -hmm. you already know this. Women dressed as men on stage is a tradition that goes back basically to the Golden Age of Spanish theatre, the the breeches role there. That was never really picked up in the same way in England, where the prohibitions concerning women on the stage were retained for longer. There was kind of a lingering resistance to women playing men on the English stage that really carries on quite a long time. Yeah. And of course, in early Victorian London, women kept themselves very much covered up and to reveal the shape of a leg by a lady, even when you couldn't actually see the leg, it was still quite, well, if not scandalous, then challenging for, for many in society. Right. That That's something that maybe I should cover on my show at some point is just the level of disdain that society had for actors for so many years. I mean, there were very, there are some periods in which they were celebrities and my God it is amazing to see actors, but because they did immoral things on stage to show, to tell stories and everything. Uh, I just love that for so many of these theatrical eras, they're just, they're just, ugh, you, ugh. I mean, you never, it, it, to be an actor is an insult. I think that you could probably make a good argument that that has always been the case. There's always been this celebrity versus <laughs> being the lowest of the low um, and, and how right, does society right. allow that and deal with it. It's, uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. One thing that may have saved Lucy, Lucy Vestris was that she was playing opposite her husband uh, who played the cat in that occasion. So there was <laughs> some something that's slightly seemly about that. But it was it was a really popular performance, uh, and then soon other managers were casting women as the leading boy in pantomimes, and it looks like that only took a year or two to catch on before pretty much everybody mm. was using women in those roles. That might have also been born out of a practical necessity because there was a change in the law at the same time which made it much more difficult to use children on stage than had been the case previously. <laughs> so the managers okay. had to employ... <laughs> 
young women who looked more like boys and then had to pay them a bit more than they were paying the boys. So they thought, well, we might as well get some more acting out of these people and increase their roles. <laughs> and that um, seems to be how they, the role of the principal boy developed. And it soon spread to oh, the most popular form of theatre at the time, which was the music hall. And then huge stars ah. in the music hall, people like Kate Everly, Queenie Layton, Vesta Tilly, took on the principal boy roles in the theatre. And even Mary Lloyd, who was the biggest star of her day, known as the queen of the music hall, uh, took on principal boy roles in the theatre. So this was where they could earn mm -hmm. good money for a season of entertainment that was uh, the same or better than what they could get in their music hall roles. And these people worked huh. really hard. I mean, the, the music hall is a whole subject of its own, of course, uh, apart from theatre, really. But mm -hmm. uh, these people worked mm -hmm. in the most incredible conditions and uh, really, really hard. Oh, man. Well, I got the opportunity to be in a Commedia show uh, several years ago. And, you know, I'm I'm a big guy. I'm six feet tall. I'm, you know, about 250 pounds. And so I got to be the big the big lug, heavy, dumb character uh, to a little scrappy, also dumb character. Um, but I mean, that was work, Philip. I mean, that was work. I, I got done every single day. I think in that production that gosh, we're rehearsing maybe two and a half weeks and for like a 45 minute show, it was a lot of rehearsal time, but uh, I think classically every single one of us dropped like five to nine pounds over that period because yeah physical comedy huh yeah I, I, for that comedian show it was like okay you're squatting and that's how you walk too it, it's just how how you did it so my th my thighs after that were in really great shape but uh, <laughs> yeah these people are working hard to give you that level of comedy and we'll leave the conversation and Evan's apparently shapely thighs there for a moment Owen and I spoke for a long time, and could have gone on for a lot longer, but there were still some things that relevant to the subject that I managed to skip over in the moment, so I'll take the opportunity to add them here. I mentioned the eight core pantomimes, and of those, there are three that may not be as familiar as the other stories, that, as well as being traditional tales, have been thoroughly Disneyfied. So, for those of you who are not familiar with the pantomime, here's a brief description of the less familiar three. There's Dick Whittington. This was based on the real life of a real Lord Mayor of London who died in 1423. Written accounts of his life appeared in the early 17th century, including Thomas Hayward's 1656, the famous and remarkable history of Sir Richard Whittington. Although there is no evidence that the good Lord Mayor ever owned a cat, which is a big feature of the pantomime. The 1862 pantomime by the prolific pantomime author H.J. Byron saw Dick chased by a villain in a hot air balloon, the year that two English balloonists had made the news for ascending to a record-breaking altitude, just one example of how the pantomime kept up with the times. Puss in Boots is an Italian folktale that first appeared in 1534, translated and published into English in 1729. It's a rags-to-riches tale, a bit like Cinderella, but like many of the folk tales, it has a questionable morality. As I mentioned briefly, riches are gained through the trickery of an expert conman, the puss of the title. The hero of the story receives all the wealth and his princess bride as a result of a scam. Unlike Cinderella, he's not unjustly bullied or put upon. 
his only saving grace morally being that he is very poor and follows the cat's instructions to the letter, often oblivious to the consequences. And then there's Mother Goose. As I mentioned, this is probably the oldest pantomime in the story, as it has its origins in the ancient Greek myth. The story, as adapted in the 18th and 19th centuries for the stage, tells of how Mother Goose is about to be thrown off her land because she cannot pay the rent. Along comes Priscilla the Goose, who has been sent by the good fairy to help Mother Goose out. Priscilla lays golden eggs and Mother Goose is made rich. The tale is used to illustrate a pretty standard moral about wealth and happiness. We also spoke about Peter Pan the play and I managed to jump over a side note on this. I don't know how well known the special copyright situation of Peter Pan is but it's an interesting quirk of history that I think is worth lingering on. It's something that I was aware of from my previous life in publishing so here's a quick note about it. International copyright law means that authors receive a benefit of their purchase or performance of their work, their royalty. Traditionally, this was for a period of 50 years from the author's death or from the first posthumous publication of the work. But with the harmonisation of copyright rules within the European Union, this was extended to 70 years for member countries, which included the UK at the time. In the US and elsewhere, I think the period is still 50 years. Now, Jay and Barry died in 1937 and left all the benefits of Peter Pan to the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. That was, and still is, the leading children's hospital in the UK. So for 50 years, until 1987, the hospital had the benefit of all the royalties from Peter Pan. In 1988, at the instigation of a former Prime Minister, the UK Copyright Act was amended by Act of Parliament to extend the copyright in Peter Pan, so that in the UK it became maintained in perpetuity. Now, this only applies to UK sales and performances, but still, the hospital will get the benefit of the royalties forever. You could say it's the copyright that never grew up. Part two of my conversation with Erin, where we dive deeper into the history of the pantomime and even get to share a few pantomime jokes, will be with you on New Year's Eve. In the meantime, my thanks to Erin for his time and entertaining company, and best wishes to you all for the holiday season. Thank you.